just got through singing, I want to see you. See you high and lifted up. Light of your glory. So we're going to do that today, actually. We're going to see some guys who got to see a unique glimpse into who Jesus really is. Glory, holy, holy, holy. We're going to try to do that in half an hour. We have all of eternity to try to fathom his glory. We're going to try to do that in just a little bit of time. And this passage has a lot to do with glory. It also has a lot to do with, with Jesus and his determination to go to the cross. And uh, so... Open your Bibles to chapter 16 and 17. I'm going to go back just a little bit because it ties in. The passage in 17 is a definite tie-in with what just took place. So got your Bibles turned to chapter 16 of Matthew, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. That he must be killed, and on the third day he rise from rise to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Aren't you glad it did? Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to the disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good is it? What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world? And yet forfeits his soul. Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Or the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth. Some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother, John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, fell face down to the ground, terrified. 
Jesus came and touched them and said, Get up, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been risen from, has raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and all will be and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Father in heaven, we come before your word here and before your presence, and we ask again that you would open our eyes that we might see you shining in the light of your glory. Father, we live in a world that's broken. We live in a world where even though the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies show his handiwork, and the whole earth is full of your glory, something's been broken in our lenses. We do not see Certainly we see the work of an enemy. We see the destruction. We see the truth that for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So open our eyes, Lord, that we may see and see again. Well, there's an awful lot here go through. And if you can see up there <clears throat> on the chart there, there's three different um, gospels that talk uh, about this this particular incident. Uh, Mark talks about it, and Luke talks about it, and believe it or not, John does. Guess where? Just in the very first chapter, he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld what? His glory. So John was here. John was there, and uh, he saw this too. Um, but anyway, let's look at the Synoptic Gospels, especially uh, Mark and Luke. We'll, we'll be jumping back and forth, um, looking at these different accounts of this um, incident. So I, see, I broke this down into, uh, what is it, seven, seven sections. There's the promise, some of you standing here, are going to see something before you die. Uh, there's the invitation. He took them up alone to pray. There's the effect. There were sleepy disciples. There were sudden sentinels, and there were some staggering changes. There's a conversation that goes on, uh, actually three, but we're going to just call the last one an interruption to the first conversation, the, one of the conversations. There's a conversation that Moses and Elijah have, and there is a conversation that Peter has, and there's an interruption that God has. And then there's an interception or a intercession. Don't be afraid and don't tell. And then there's a predecessor. They'll treat me the same. So let's look at the promise a little bit. We have to go back. That's why I read <clears throat> in the prior section where it says from that time on, something had just happened. This is a pivotal moment when 
He's been teaching his disciples, teaching his disciples, explaining and showing who he is. And he finally comes to this point, and he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter comes up with a great statement. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that says, from that point, now that they've got it, he goes into this next part of his teaching, and that's, I've got to die. I've got to go to a cross. I've got to suffer and kill, be killed and raised again. And, of course, Peter didn't quite like that angle, and so there's a conflict. And he says, never, Lord, never. The crux of it is in when Jesus says, Peter, you have you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And we're going to see that in our passage today as well, where he has in mind the things of men and not the things of God. Of course, that is a, a, a segue, a reminder of way back when, when the first man and woman did not have in mind the things of God, right? But the things of men. And that was where the beginning of the fall came. That was the beginning of the uglification, if you want to call it, instead of the glory. And so the crux of the matter is the things of God versus the things of men. You want to save your life? You want to do your own thing, go your own way? You're going to lose something. Or you're going to lose your life. It's going to look like that. Following me, doing what God says. In the end, you're going to find it. The climax of this is in verse 27, because Jesus wants them to get something. There is a finality. There is a conclusion to this story. There is a culmination, and I want you to get a little bit of it. And so he says, the Son of Man will come in his Father's glory. The Son of Man is going to come in his kingdom. And I love the these two words, glory, kingdom, majesty, power. And that's what we do when Jesus told us to pray. Remember he said, thy kingdom come, right? It's going to come. Thy will be done. And it ends it with what? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the Glory, right? How long? Forever. What good is a kingdom without glory? What good is a kingdom without power? What good is a kingdom that just fizzles? No, and so all these words fit together here to explain the glory and the majesty and the and the permanence of his kingdom. And he says, it's going to come. Remember, he stood before Sanhedrin and says, you're going to see the Son of Man coming in glory and power, sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. Remember that? And now there's a connection. The connection. Some of you who are standing here are going to see something before you die. And that says after six days. After what? Well, after something. This word after is important. There has to be a previous event that precedes this for there to be an after. After connects one event to another. So we have to look back to see what preceded it. 
in order to grasp the relevance and significance of what's now taking place. And each of the synoptic gospels has the same emphasis on tying this account of the transfiguration to what just preceded after. And so Jesus has just turned the corner in his teaching with his disciples. His identity was firmly embedded and grasped by his disciples. The opposition of the Jewish leadership is also very apparent. Every day it's becoming more so. Peter has stated it clearly. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now Matthew says from that time on, something happened. Jesus began to explain to the disciple that he what? Must. Must. It's a strong word. It's an imperative. It's something that had to happen. It was a requisite. Right? It must. You ever thought all the times Jesus said this must happen? He must go through Samaria? Go tell that fox, I must go here this day and there the second day and on the third day I'm going to reach my goal. Don't be surprised, Nicodemus, if I tell you something. You must be born again. There's no name given among men under heaven whereby we what? Must be saved. There is a requisite. There is an order of events. Something has to happen. And Jesus knows that, and he says, I must do this. He says it twice in this passage. He must go to Jerusalem. He must be killed and on the third day raised. So the schedule of events is about to unfold is not unknown to Jesus. He knows what must take place in order for the redemption and salvation of mankind and for his kingdom to advance and conquer. Nothing and nobody is going to distract him from that course that he must take. Be it a disciple or the devil himself. Get behind me, Satan. In preparing the disciples for the unpalatable rejection and suffering around the corner, he also tells them of some wonderful days and some wonderful joys just further down the road. We're going to see that in a minute. He speaks of the coming of his father in his father's glory with the angels, of rewards for the faithful. And I like this because some dark days are up ahead. And they're going to need to remember something. Jesus himself kept this always in sight. You remember when he faced the cross? Who for the joy sat before him, endured the cross. Now he assures his disciples that some of you standing here will not taste death before you see something that's very important. And it's going to be the like the coming of the Son of Man in his kingdom. We see Christ's omniscience in knowing exactly what lay ahead of him, but also the encouraging revelation to his disciples of what was just a little bit ahead. What a privilege! For the majority of us, death is the inevitable precursor before we ever see anything about the glory of his kingdom. This is not a surprise. It seems to be the storyline, the not yet reality that we live with. All these people were still living by faith when they, what, died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And so these three guys that get selected 
have a special privilege, don't they? Well, let's look on besides this promise. Let's look at the invitation, the selection, the three in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. The locations, he led them up a high mountain. A high mountain. It was a vantage point. It was a mountaintop experience. It was a place from which you could get perspective. And so these mountains are important here because they're going to need to see something. From this mountain, they're going to look ahead. They're going to look beyond the Mount Calvary, and they're going to see another mountain, Mount Zion. I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill, right? But before that hill, there is another hill. And they just don't get this, this hill. And Jesus yeah, the other one's coming. But this one's first. And I want you to get a glimpse of the other one so that you can handle this one. Because you're going to be so discouraged. You're going to be so out of it. You need to have a glimpse of that one. And then there's the isolation. He takes them by themselves, alone. And Bob had a song for us this morning. He stole it from me. There's another one just like it. It says, there is a quiet place far from the rapid pace where God can soothe our troubled soul. And so he takes them away for a, a quiet place alone. What was the intention? Well, Matthew doesn't show it, but Mark and Luke, well, Luke especially does show it, to pray. Yes, both of them say to pray. And if you notice in Luke, he prays an awful lot because just before he asks Peter this question, his disciples, it says, once when Jesus was praying in private and the disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? Now he's taking them up to a mountain to pray. It's interesting. Jesus, when he was 12 years old, didn't we say something about my, no, that wasn't then. Later, he says, he cleanses the temple. He says, my house is going to be called, my father's house is called a house of prayer. In 1 Peter, turn there with me, 1 Peter chapter 4. There's a crazy verse here. It's always, it's always struck me. 1 Peter 4 verse 2. about Christ's suffering a little bit. And then in verse 2 it says, where is it? No, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can what? Pray. When you see the end coming, <laughs> is that what your first thought is? Oh, i got to pray. We often are running around like chickens with the head cut off. Oh, Jesus, oh, here. No, no, it's falling. God's perspective, Peter's perspective, he just got through writing this, is now the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded so that you can pray. And Jesus is taking them up to a mountain to pray. So there's an invitation. There's the effect. 
Matthew doesn't say it, but Luke does say it. In Luke chapter 9, verse 32, this is what happens. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. Not a new phenomenon. A sure cure for insomnia. Try praying. It works every time. You know, when you sleep, you miss things. And I think they miss something that God records here. We'll see that in a minute. What did they miss? Ephesians says something interesting. Is awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And so that is exactly what happens in this passage. Well, suddenly there's these sentinels that show up. Moses and Elijah, two great prayer warriors, aren't they? You remember Elijah on Mount Carmel? Remember praying in the cloud? You remember praying and the the fire comes down and praying and praying? Praying three times. James brings him up. They were great intercessors. Moses prayed and prayed. There's another thought here. Moses and Elijah has it ever struck you? Who introduced them? Did they have a sign or I'm Moses. I'm Elijah. When you look through a glass darkly, but one day we'll be, we shall see clearly, and we will know just as we are known. And there's something about it. They didn't have to be introduced. These guys knew who those guys were. Moses and Elijah. The law and the prophets. Remember that? The law. Moses, the lawgiver. The prophet. Probably one of the most renowned ones was Elijah. They were mountain men. And they're on a mountain. Moses was on a mountain. Remember Mount Sinai? Elijah was on a mountain. There's some similarities here about why these two men show up. But then there's a staggering change that takes place. There's a metamorphosis. Apparently this is one of the only two places where this word shows up. We use the word transfigured, transformed. Something changed. Kids, you've got transformers, right? probably watch some movies about these transformers. Uh, you look at a thing that looks like one thing, but all of a sudden everything changes and it becomes something else. Well, look at what some, some of the things it says. In verse 2, it says, His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. In Mark, it says, His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. In Luke, it says his face was changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Now, this morning I woke up and the sun was shining right in my eyes. And I was, man, put a curtain up. I mean, I can't see. Can you imagine what this must have looked like? Like lightning? Have you looked at the lightning very long? (laughs) Bright as the sun in its brilliance? glory. This was, whoa! 
One thing came to my mind was this, or was this an unveiling? We sing about it. We sing about it at Christmas. Mild he lay his glory by. Born so man no more could die. Veiled in flesh. Look at John chapter 17. John chapter 17. This is Jesus just before the cross. And he prays something very interesting. <clears throat> Obviously why he has the disciples with him. In verse 24, it says this. After, just before the finish of his prayer, he says this, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me before because you loved me. What's that song we sang this morning, Bob? Near to the heart of God. Because you loved me before the creation of the world. And then jump back over to 17. Five, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Was this an unveiling? I don't think it was. Did he lay his glory by? Not the altar of open church. Moses wanted to see the glory of God, and God said, <laughs> Are you kidding? Uh, you go stand in that rock, behind that rock, there's a cleft there. Uh, I will pass by, all my goodness pass in front of you, but you sure can't see my face there. I want to see, I want to see the effect. Let's look at the conversation just a little bit. Moses and Elijah, they spoke about something, and Luke tells us what they spoke about. Elijah's had a strange departure. They spoke about his departure. You remember, Mo, you remember Elijah? And Eli, Elisha's his prodigy, his disciple. Jesus is with his disciples. And he's telling them, I'm going to leave. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to raise from the dead. And here we have a departure. Elijah's strange departure the prophets came up to Elisha and said, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master away from you today? Several times this happened. He says, I know, but don't just be quiet about it. There was another departure. Moses had a departure as well. It's also called the Exodus. This is not a departure like, I'm out of here. This is more like, you're done messing with my people. Departure. And here we have these two guys who are types of Christ. And they're coming to him. And they're talking about something that is imperative. It's important. His departure. And notice what it says. Which he was about to accomplish. Not that he was about to fizzle. Not it was going to just happen to him and he was a victim. He was going to accomplish it. 
Mission accomplished. He was a man on a mission. Philippians says, he who began a good work will accomplish it. Isaiah says he saw that there was no one to help, so his own arm worked salvation for him. I guess he's finished carpentry. He accomplishes what he plans. Peter said something. His conversation is right here. And, and I like the first part of what he says. It's so good. And it's so true. And he says, where is it? Oh, it's on the sheet. He says, Lord. He says Lord a lot, doesn't he? <laughs> Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now he's saying, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Is it good for them to be there? It was. That's why he took them there. It's good for us to be here. It's good for have, to have this revelation. It's good to know who the Savior is. It's good to know what the end plan is. It's good for us to be here. And then he goes back to the you don't have in mind thing. And he says, oh, but this is And he says some things. Now, in uh, Mark, it says he didn't know what, he, what to say. He was so scared. And in Luke, it says he didn't know what he was saying. But he was never at a loss for saying something, wasn't he? And so he come up with this thought, if you wish, I'll build three shelters. Now, what are they talking about? Departure. And he's talking about accommodations. Peter, come on. The things of God, not the things of man. A building instead of a glorious salvation. Monuments instead of living stones. And sometimes we do the same thing. God reveals something to us and right away, hey, let's build something. But you be quiet. Listen to my son. And so there's an interruption while he was still speaking. While he was still speaking. That's important. I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, he didn't kind of finish it. He's like, will you shut up? But notice what happens. A bright cloud enveloped them. I've been reading through Exodus and Numbers and in this past couple of weeks, and, and this came up. The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. And when the cloud lifted, there's this cloud. Remember, a bright cloud enveloped them. When the cloud lifted from the tent, there stood Miriam, leprous, like snow. I wonder if that's why they're so terrified. <coughs> in number 16, it says, But when the assembly gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron and turned toward the tent of meeting, suddenly the cloud covered it, and <coughs> the glory of the Lord appeared. And the Lord said to Moses, Get away from this assembly. So I can put an end to them at once. It says, and they fell face down. There's a voice in this too. The voice, interesting how he says, and there was a voice. There was a voice. Psalm 29 is wonderful. It talks about the voice. The voice of the Lord is powerful, majestic. It strips the oaks. 
and the response of everybody is in his temple, they all cry something. Cool? Wow. Bummer? <laughs> they cry one thing. In fact, Peter talks about that in 2 Peter 1.18. So turn there just real quickly. Back in Peter, this Peter guy, he, he got some things, even though he may have talked out of place many times. Now he's got it pretty well. <clears throat> in fact, he probably thought that this story would be something that would be, later on, progressive Christians would probably think this is an invented story. So he says this, we do not follow cleverly invented stories when we told, when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice, here's this voice, when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So there's this voice, there's a cloud, there's this voice, and there's this focus. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Just listen to him. And their response was they fell face down. Well, there was another revelation to the other guy. Remember John? John's here on this thing. In John chapter, in Revelation chapter 1, let's look a little bit further back and see a voice again that speaks to John while he's on the Isle of Patmos. And verse 12, it says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a, gold, a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Does that sound familiar? White? Blazing? His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. I think we just got through talking about that, didn't we? And he said, something he says is the same said, he says, do not be afraid. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You want to see his glory? I think we're going to do the same thing. We're going to fall at his feet. And guess what he does? He says, don't be afraid. Why? Because he did something at the cross. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death. So the focus is him. The interception, we talked just a little bit about it. Jesus says something, but Jesus came and touched them and said, don't be afraid. Does that, does that sound weird to Jesus? Should they have been afraid? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's righteous fear. And at a condition in a place like that where John and Peter and James, they fell at his feet and they were terrified. And Jesus
Jesus says, don't be afraid. Standing in the presence of God's glory is a fearful thing, and rightfully so. For all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. This interesting passage that says this, the glory of a woman is her hair. The glory of young men is their strength. But we're on a sinking ship. Our physical glory is fading. Our moral and spiritual condition recoils in his presence. It is only this one who can calm our fears. It is he alone who can do this. Have you seen the fading glory around you? The forfeited glory? The souls that thought they would gain the world but lost it? I was coming last night from work. And there was a man standing on the side of the road. I sang about it a little bit this morning, the wreckage time, the wreckage ministry. And I saw that man. That's not the glory of Jesus. That's not the glory of Jesus. He fell short of his glory. That's not what God wanted. The wreckage. You looked in the mirror lately? The knees, artificial knees. Sat in bed with Bob Casey this past year. That's not the guy Jesus wants. The wreckage of sin. And this is the one who comes and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Well, then he tells them something else. To silence the fear, it's intercepted. The exuberant awe is intercepted as well. He says, don't tell anyone until something happens. The departure, the accomplished work was not done or validated yet. It was Mount Calvary before Mount Zion. It was, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his Interception, Hebrews talks about so well the fall. What is man that you're mindful of, the son of man that you care about him? You made him a little lower than the angels, and you crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. So then putting everything under his feet, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see this, do we? We see the man. We see the person in the hospital. We see the we see the, the wreckage. What happened? This was the fall. Sin's ruin. Satan's scheme. But we see Jesus, who was made like us in the incarnation, a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might test taste death for every one of us. And get this. This is the end plan in bringing many sons to glory. To glory. That's his plan. To redeem, to rescue, and to take out of the ashes and bring glory back. Not the glory we had. Something a lot bigger. It's his glory. 
It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Well, our time is up. There's more, but Father in heaven, thank you for glimpses into your great plan. Thank you for our Savior, Jesus, who did accomplish this and who now sits at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, at your right hand. Thank you that he is intending to bring us to glory. Thank you that he wants us to be transformed from glory to glory into that very likeness of the one we gaze upon, the Son. So speak to us and open our eyes that we should receive. Let's stand.